0: Hello again, and welcome to the Wednesday interview from the Sustainable Futures Report for Wednesday the 9th of March. I'm Anthony Day. Back in May last year, we had a debate on the Sustainable Futures Report called The Nuclear Option. One of the panellists was Sarah Cullen, and she's joined me again today, this time to talk about clean energy. We covered a number of controversial issues. For example, will Germany slow down the pace of decommissioning its nuclear plants in the face of a possible shortage of gas from Russia? We talked about citizens' assemblies and how they might empower politicians to adopt policies that they wouldn't dare consider on their own. We spoke about the need to consider all energy options and to recognise that all have risks. We spoke about the IEA's roadmap to Net Zero 2050, and you'll find a link to that on the Sustainable Futures Report website. Links to to next week's webinar from 18 for Zero, which asks, is nuclear green? And talks about the European sustainable taxonomy. Listen now to the full conversation and all the other things we talked about. Today I'm talking to Sarah Cullen, who is a founder and steering group member of 18 for Zero. 18 for Zero is an Irish organization which wants all forms of electricity production to be considered in order to achieve net zero, including nuclear power, which is currently illegal in Ireland. Sarah has professional experience in the solar and nuclear sectors, has a BSc in physics and a master's degree in energy systems engineering. Sarah, welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report.
1: Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for having me back.
0: Oh, that's great. Um, It's always nice to keep in touch with specialists and experts. So this week, uh, another report was published by the IPCC. Once again, it urges us to cut carbon emissions dramatically and urgently. A very significant proportion of the world's emissions comes from the generation of electricity, from coal, from natural gas and biomass. If we're going to clean up energy production in time to save the world, where should we be concentrating our efforts?
1: Well, so electricity production is a really good place to start talking because um, it's really important to make clear the difference between energy and electricity. So electricity is a portion of energy, but energy also includes kind of heating and transport and industry and kind of like other big sectors, some of which are quite difficult to decarbonize. So uh, really like a tactic that I think a lot of people are familiar with is electrifying these sectors so replacing the oil in your car with electricity or same with industry and then focus on decarbonizing the electricity so decarbonizing electricity is really central to kind of most roadmaps to getting to net zero um and i suppose the kind of um ideological factors in the conversation make it a little bit more difficult with regards to decarbonizing electricity so some people have you know um views that to decarbonize electricity we should be minimizing our use to the bare minimum um, and we should stop kind of economic growth and we've uh, we've been very bad so we're not allowed to use electricity anymore and then other people kind of take another extreme view that we should completely decarbonize electricity and then can kind of continue on the trajectory that we're on um, and clearly it's important to decarbonize the technologies we're going to be using for the electricity that we have but then I feel like neither of those kind of two extreme scenarios are right and somewhere in the middle we also have to factor in a massive reduction in energy use and energy consumption so yeah so it, it gets quite complicated um And then when it comes down to which technologies we use to decarbonize the electricity, there's kind of further ideologies at play. Um, You might have heard about the EU have the sustainable taxonomy that they're pushing through. So it's going to define green technologies um, for kind of investment purposes and for financing purposes. And what this is meant to do is discourage greenwashing and set out these are. You know, these meet our scientific definition of green. But ideology has kind of come into it again, where some technologies that meet the scientific uh, definition are being contested. So nuclear power was found to meet the does no significant harm criteria, but some countries oppose it, uh, mainly Germany on an ideological basis. And then other technologies that don't meet the criteria, like natural gas, are being proposed to be included as well. Um, It costs a lot of doubt over the integrity of the taxonomy, and it kind of, it's not, you know, that's obviously only relevant to the EU, but it's indicative of this kind of broader confusion about what we do, (laughs) how we decarbonize, which technologies we use.
0: Yeah, well, as as you were saying, I think it's, uh, there's a midway between stopping economic growth and not using any energy and carrying on as we are. I think it's undeniable that we waste a lot of energy. And I think we've certainly got to address that, but then it leaves us with a question as where are we getting the energy from in in the first place? Yeah, I'm surprised to learn that um, the EU is suggesting that uh, gas is green.
1: Well, the reason, so under the taxonomy, um, there's kind of three categories of technologies that are getting included. So the first is like the kind of green, they meet the scientific definition. They are green. So that would be, you know, like geothermal, most renewables, nuclear and stuff. And then there's other ones that enable green technologies, So like hydrogen, um, you know, things that can store energy. And then the third category, which is the controversial category <laughs> and has been added in. And actually it's been proposed that nuclear is added into this category, um, for, political reasons, not for any actual scientific reasons, but it's the category of natural natural gas and it's described as transitional. So the argument is that although natural gas has a high carbon intensity, it's not as high as other technologies and it will enable countries to transition to fully renewable grids if they want to avoid other technologies like nuclear power and they don't have the capacity for hydropower or geothermal, other kind of baseload um, clean technologies. So that's the, the natural gas one is, um, yeah, it's been proposed mainly by anti-nuclear countries for kind of obvious reasons. and um, So Austria and Germany, um, and is, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of bickering over that. Um, and it kind of cast doubt on whether the taxonomy will make it through the European parliament.
0: Well, nuclear power is the elephant in the room, isn't it? And events are changing rapidly. And of course, we've got these dreadful things going on in Ukraine. Um, And Russia is a principal supplier of both oil and gas to Europe. So whether we continue to use gas is to a great extent in the hands of Russia and people are beginning to realize that in present circumstances russia could actually switch the pipelines off it's already been agreed that the nord stream 2 pipeline will not be put into operation Uh, the fact that that's happened doesn't actually reduce supplies because it's not in operation at the moment but Mm. russia could go further and turn off existing pipelines so i understand that germany is now beginning to rethink its opposition to nuclear or at least rethink it insofar as they're not going to decommission their remaining nuclear power stations as uh, as quickly as they originally intended. Do you think that's the start of a complete about-turn?
1: About-turn in how we generate electricity? Or- well,
0: a change of German policy towards perhaps retaining uh, nuclear power, perhaps even putting in new nuclear power like France's, because France has mm-hmm. just announced a programme of a whole range of new nuclear power stations.
1: Yeah, so with Germany, um, it's very interesting. So as of today, no decision's been made, and it might take a while for a decision to be made. Um, There's been claims in newspapers that Germany is going to transition to 100% renewable grid by 2035, which isn't technically possible, and um, those are quite misleading headlines. That's an aspiration. Why
0: do you say it's not technically possible? What Um, what would it imply?
1: So there are certain types of renewables um, that can provide what's known as firm power or baseload power. And then there's other types of renewables that are variable. So we know these like, you know, wind and solar and tidal, I suppose, in the future. Um, They they rely on um, kind of external factors to turn them on and off. So you can't choose when you're going to dispatch electricity from them. And these are great. And you can have other technologies that complement them, which mean that you have electricity all time, and you can use them to charge batteries and use use those batteries when, say, it's not sunny. Um, Firm power um, is power plants that can be turned on and off. So in most countries, this is usually fossil fuels, but nuclear power, geothermal power, hydropower all also fit this um, description. And there is, in some countries, it is possible to get to 100% renewable power quite soon because they have a lot of hydropower and um, hydro is defined as renewable. Renewable power is just um, power that fuel source isn't being depleted as it's being used. It's a bit of a kind of misleading term. I think a lot of people can conflate it with clean energy. Clean energy is low carbon energy, and that includes some non-renewable sources like nuclear power that has lower carbon emissions life cycle carbon emissions than most, than all renewables, actually, the UNECE found last year. Um, So so basically, we want clean electricity technologies, and um, focusing on renewables is, you know, an ideology as well. Um, And to get to 100% renewables, you will need firm power to back up the variables. And because... Battery technology, as it currently exists, can't be expanded at the rates needed, and to fully back up a grid that's based entirely on variable power. Same with hydrogen; it's in no way economic. But also, there's huge supply chain issues and materials issues, like technical issues beyond cost. But if it was to rely on cost, it would be astronomically expensive and um, even grids with a high share of variable renewables have really high systems costs so all the extra transmission systems you need to put in for them, the cost of balancing power which is you know filling in the gaps when it's not windy or sunny get really expensive the OECD uh, nuclear energy agency last year did a study um, on nuclear and renewable hyd- hybrid systems and the cost of these systems costs and um, double the cost of electricity when you get to you know over 70% variable renewables so that's, that's a really important consideration as well. But just on the technical side, it's, uh, it's not possible for a country that doesn't have large supplies of clean, firm power to just rely on variable renewables. Um, maybe in the future, maybe battery technologies will progress. I really hope they do. Um, and certainly the International Energy Agency in their kind of roadmaps to net zero expect that these will progress and they get a lot of funding for research But as it stands, 2035 is completely aspirational. So going back to what you said originally about uh, nuclear power in Germany and their minister for economy. And today, I'm I'm not sure about their government titles. Another senior member of their government um, announced that they're looking in to nuclear power. And he was asked by a reporter about it. And he said, you know, we're not ruling it out. Germany had lots of nuclear, and then after 2011, for an ideological purpose, they started being phased out. And the phase out is meant to finish up at the end of this year. So they still have three nuclear reactors connected to their grid. They shut off another six at the end of 2021. Um, The carbon emissions that those plants saved compared to the German grid without them is the equivalent of all European flights for an entire year. So just to give a give context of how big these plants are and how much carbon they save. <laughs> but they also provided extra fuel security for Germany because they're not getting the nuclear fuel from Russia. So now the really big concern is where they're going to get their power from if because they're highly dependent on Russia for their other energy, um, like so gas mainly. Um, it's possible for some of the plants to be turned on. Some of the plants that were getting decommissioned by the end of the year, the decommissioning doesn't actually start until the end of next year, um, or like a little bit later because you need special permits for some of the processes, and that's still all being processed. So it's so some of these haven't actually started being decommissioned, and it's technically possible to turn them back on. And one of the major fuel suppliers, Urano, um, the, I think the president or the director of that um said in a press statement he will do everything he can to ensure that Germany would get the fuel that they would need and to support them turning it back on. then there's some kind of like workforce issues and if people are still around, although given that this is a crisis, I imagine those kind of employment issues aren't as serious as in regular times when people would be less, um, yeah, it'd take less of a (laughs) wartime mentality of helping out, possibly. So yeah, so it's very complicated. Germany. are looking into restarting their nuclear reactors but they've kind of made it difficult on themselves by phasing them out early um but there are some still online and that's good because when you know when one country in europe is um really reliant on russia for some of its energy that ties into all of europe because our grids interconnected and then countries further downstream of the pipeline um also get connected so if germany You know, the pipeline from Russia goes through Europe and say in Ireland, where I'm from, you know, we technically buy our gas from the UK and Norway, but the UK buys gas from Europe. And if you start following back up the chain, you see that Germany not getting all of their power means further impacts further down so what germany decides to do is really important as a huge electricity user is really important for the rest of europe's energy security um and yeah so they haven't announced so far that they're looking to build new nuclear plants and to be honest that wouldn't really help much with this because nuclear plants take a few years to build and this is quite an immediate concern and um, so that them having these possibly still fun- you know Functional nuclear power plants that are just turned off is a good resource for Europe, hopefully. Right.
0: <laughs> if they turn them back on, would that enable them to um, decarbonize by 2035?
1: I haven't seen any studies into that because obviously the plan until last week was to have them all shut off. Yeah. So all studies take into account, and um, that they'll be turned off. I think that that's technically possible, and um, it depends. So, so well, it depends. Some of the plants are turned off, like starting to be decommissioned. When you start decommissioning, you inject a substance into the reactor that kind of neutralizes a lot of, um, like the potential for reactions to take place in it. And that's the start of the decommissioning process. Once that's been happened, you would, once that has already happened, you would need to replace the reactor. So there are plants where that hasn't happened already. I'm not sure what share of the total energy those are, um, but yeah, possibly with a mix of other technologies. And I mean, you always talk about a mix of technologies because it's never going to just be, you know, hundred percent nuclear, or hundred percent renewables or anything. So it would depend on what other technologies that are available.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course, the urgency in the IPCC report is to cut back emissions as quickly as we possibly can. It's a warning, which I think we've had from the IPCC almost as long as the IPCC has been around. But they're now saying, and if you read the report, that if we go over 1.5 degrees centigrade in terms of global warming, then we will create a lot of things which will be irreversible. The situation as it stands is despite these repeated reports from preeminent scientists all over the world, the global emissions are going up and up and up. And even during the pandemic, although it slowed down during lockdown, it's still going up. So we're in a very difficult and very urgent situation. I would have thought it was a no brainer if German governments and anybody other governments really took it seriously that they should not be. Switching to a transition fuel, which is uh, more carbon intensive than the nuclear power that they're already using, so I don't know—is uh, there the—is the is there the psychological willingness or realization that something has to be done? Are we actually going to achieve clean energy in time? Because when you when when the IPCC says one point five degrees is um, a, a, an essential target which cannot be breached. We know that the plans that all the signatories to the Paris Agreement have, if implemented, will lead to a rise of about 3.4. So, well, where are we? What's the answer to that, Sarah? We we need an answer.
1: Okay, so the question is like, when will people realize and is there still time to kind of catch up? That's kind of one of the most pressing um, topics in the world. The, so the International Energy Agency, I mentioned earlier, they came out with a report um, uh, with roadmap to net zero um, carbon by 2050. And in that, so they had two scenarios in that, That um, there are four scenarios in total. And two of the scenarios in that were what would need to be done to meet those climate targets. And it was tailored to that. And then the other two scenarios compared what has been pledged by governments and what actual policy has been put in place by governments. So the best performing scenario was, by design, their net zero emissions scenario. So limiting climate change to under 1.5 degrees, I'm pretty sure, and then reaching net zero emissions by 2050. And then the other scenario was meeting net zero, but then also taking into account um, other sustainable development like air quality and stuff. So that was less good in terms of carbon, but had you know, is really important for policymakers to bear that in mind. The other two scenarios are very interesting. So one of them took into account um, what governments have pledged that they'll do and what they've signed up to do. And that one didn't perform very well at all. And then the worst performing one was what governments have actually put, like what policies they've actually put into place. And um, that one sees us missing our goals entirely. And I think that's probably uh, in line with the IPCC report. I'm not sure of the exact numbers of it. It's, so it, it's really clear that even with the pledges, not even what with what's actually happening, but even with the kind of aspirational pledges that governments have, we're so far off track doing what needs to be done. And the International Energy Agency, they did this roadmap to try to get people back on track but they have a progress tracker, and everything is either yellow or red in it. <laughs> so most energy sources, or um, and like you know, behavior changes and policies um, aren't on track at all. And um, there's a huge kind of disconnect between the scientific community and poli- uh, and politicians in this area, and it's really unclear. What more can be done to combat this we see at COP whenever it comes around all the new pledges that they're not actually. <laughs> they're not actually helping us helping with anything and um, they're not correlating with the action that needs to be done, and um, when you see countries putting um, party politics ahead of climate change like Germany did. So the green parties, um, a lot of them in Europe were founded out of uh, uh, you know opposing nuclear war and opposing nuclear power because they kind of conflated those into being the same thing. And that has had a knock-on effect of ignoring really crucial technologies um, that should have been deployed around the world and could have averted a lot of um, carbon and are still being felt where politicians whose job it is to get um, re-elected, like that is their entire job, um, don't want to anger their base and don't want to anger people who've now made it part of their identity to oppose certain clean energy technologies. So then we see a kind of warping of, well, maybe gas isn't that bad. And I think a lot of it comes from a misunderstanding. It's very worrying to see countries putting forward fossil fuels as a climate solution. It's not in line with any of the scientific literature.
0: Okay. But people would turn around and they would say, look at nuclear power, look at the potential for nuclear disaster, look at Three Mile Island, look at Chernobyl, look at Fukushima, look at the fact that the waste that is produced is toxic and has a life of, well, hundreds of lifetimes, hundreds of human lifetimes. Uh, And they say, well, is the risk worth it? So, what is your answer to that?
1: We have a really, really big risk coming our way. And we know about it and we hear about it all the time um, with climate change. Um, there are risks with every form of electricity generation. And I think that there should be much broader conversations about all of these. The nuclear industry faces a lot of scrutiny with it that other energy technologies don't, not even fossil fuels and especially not renewable technologies uh, when it comes to you know air quality, waste management, biodiversity loss and like impact on ecosystems these need to be much better addressed. I think people, um, you know, get a lot of their information about energy systems from what is essentially marketing materials from the relevant associations. So wind associations (laughs) or renewables that are pushing for clean electricity, yes, but they're also pushing for business interests. um, And international organizations like the IEA um, don't seem to penetrate into what politicians are hearing and what regular people are hearing so yeah there's um with nuclear um there are risks in the same way there are risks with all of the technologies that we're using um and they need to be managed definitely but you know if you want to say look at chernobyl and three mile island and fukushima i would really encourage do look at them look at them and look at industrial accidents in other sectors and look at mortality and morbidity in all the other sectors and make don't don't just look at the nuclear um impacts look at all of them and make a good <laughs> make sensible comparisons between them and then choose your mix of technologies based on that and what we find is when we balance these risks Nuclear power comes out okay. There's still risks associated with it, sure. And I mean, even just down to, you need concrete to build them. And you know, they're, they're, in, they're always gonna be environmental inputs to your electricity use. But when you actually look at all of the technologies, not just nuclear, you know, the Lancet have an, have an article um, comparing mortality and morbidity for major forms of electricity generation in Europe. And nuclear is an order of magnitude safer than gas. And then other fossil fuels that we're advocating for. And it's similar to renewables. The UNECE shows that it has lower environmental impact. In, and so that, that mortality and morbidity includes all natural or all nuclear disasters. And um, the UNECE finds that it has lower environmental impact, including carbon emissions, but also other environmental impacts like on air quality and water, and then uh, other technologies, including renewables. We should be really examining all of them, but very fast. We, we don't really have much time to waste because the really big threat that's coming up is climate change.
0: And do you feel that the the politicians will actually accelerate the work towards addressing these issues? I, I, I've I've I'm very pessimistic. I mean, I don't I don't see it because politicians, I fear, always take the short term view. And as you were saying earlier on, their business is to get reelected and um, the long-term view or cathedral viewing as somebody was uh, describing it the other day is really not on their agenda
1: it's not and it's really worrying i mean even so if you go back to that iea report they looked at um what factor behavior changes will compared to technology changes and big system changes Mm -hmm. will have in reaching net zero emissions in that scenario they had and obviously behavior changes need to account for much more of emissions reductions in advanced economies and already very energy intensive countries. But even in those cases, it accounted for, I think like maybe 15% of carbon reduction in buildings. Uh, So, you know, like better insulation, less intensive appliances and that sort of thing. And then I think it was closer to 40% for transport, but that's mainly just from not flying because it's really difficult to decarbonize planes. The rest of the changes, the vast majority of the changes are system changes and will have to be enacted by governments. It's just not possible for people to do it. So while it can be easy to kind of look at this and despair that nothing's going to happen. I mean, first of all, the system changes or the behavior change is really crucial to meeting those goals. And everyone should be pushing for that anyway. Um, but. There's some, I guess, something. I'm not a politician. Something has to happen to enable the system changes that we need and to enable them on a more realistic time scale than is currently being discussed. Some of the technologies that I hear um, proposed as solutions for climate change, like tidal and fusion and uh, other technologies and like hydrogen, um, you know, on the scales that we would need as quickly as we need them. Are a bit unrealistic, and I think in some ways it's a nice way for governments to just say we have these technologies coming up, we don't need to do much now, and that's been one of the issues I think with the 2050 targets is that no government who's currently in power now will be in power in 2050, obviously. So it's it's a really nice excuse for them to go, well, we tried, and that's for future generations when you know carbon in the atmosphere is cumulative. So the sooner we have the (laughs) the sooner we make the system changes, the better. And now we're starting to come into a phase where people um, say that the changes that we need, the necessary changes are too slow. And they're getting disheartened from that point of view. So I hear this with, I know nuclear is being brought up as an example, but also with certain forms of renewables and with battery technologies that, you know, it'll take 10 years to get these systems in place. That's too slow. It'll take 15 years to change our, uh, our transmission system in the way that's needed. That's too slow. And that's also worrying, um, this kind of fatalism that is being thrown about because the remedy that's being offered to that is that the first um, really extreme viewpoint I mentioned earlier of cut off kind of people's electricity use, um, people can't use appliances anymore, people can't have private vehicles and stuff, which I think is totally unrealistic. And just really murkies the water of what needs to be done, and turns people off the conversation as a whole. I think it's up to people to be very realistic and pragmatic when they talk about these things, because that's that's what's giving people their information. <laughs> these kind of uh, this kind of chatter. So by murkying the waters at this stage and saying, "Wouldn't it be nice if we all just stopped needing electricity?" Um, it actually doesn't help. Uh, in the way that maybe those environmentalists think it would. A
0: very prominent on the environmentalist front, of course, is Extinction Rebellion. One of the things that they demand is the creation of a citizens assembly to assess all the science and information and advise governments. Now, in Ireland, you have had experience of citizens' assemblies, is there any chance that a citizens' assembly will be set up for that purpose?
1: So, um, we actually already had a citizens' assembly for climate change um, in our climate action um, in Ireland, I think, two years ago. Um, there's, so citizens' assemblies are great. The kind of big one that Ireland is known for and that kind of got these citizens' assemblies on a global stage um, was one that we had about abortion rights in 2016, I think. And they, you know, where scientists were brought in and put before a group of I think 99 or 100 citizens, and um, they were allowed to ask as many questions they want and all different views were taken on board. And eventually they came up with recommendations that were kind of in line with a lot of international best practice for medicine and were totally out of line with what Irish politicians would ever have been comfortable proposing. Mm -hmm. So it's a really nice system to take that element of politicians just want to get re-elected; that's their job out of it. And it gives them a mandate to go forward with something. I think it's a really nice way of engaging um, politicians because people tend to be much more up for, I know in Ireland, this has always been the case, I imagine in lots of other countries too, most other countries, that people tend to be up for necessary change. And people understand science when it's communicated to them. But politicians are always going to be more reserved because it's their personal job on the line, um, if they make a false step. Um, so yeah, I like the idea of citizens' assemblies, there's also a worry, though, because the one that happened in Ireland to do a climate action had a political slant to it and which technologies were considered had a political. So nuclear power wasn't discussed as a technology at all. And that clearly has a political slant to it. That is not fully scientific. So I guess it ensuring that they're run properly is really important. Um, but they're probably one of the best tools that we have to actually get through to policymakers.
0: Right. Well, finally, we started off by talking about clean energy. And the question is, is it too late to save the world? How optimistic are you? You've got a lot of life ahead of you, a lot more than I have. Uh, Where, where do you see yourself in the future? Where do you see the world in the future?
1: Um, I guess, in some ways i'm optimistic because i want to be but then when i look at how what i've been doing so since last april i've been volunteering i like i left my job and i've been volunteering full-time to try to change the laws about nuclear power in ireland so it can be discussed as a technology option because i look at what our current trajectory is and i feel quite panicked and um and i felt a kind of sense of person you know energy is my area I i felt a sense of personal responsibility to contribute to that topic and i see people i see all sorts of groups of people doing that in their areas so you know in circular economy or in you know recycling or whatever it is um but that being said there have been people doing these things for years really great enthusiastic fantastic people doing great work for years and it hasn't been having the effect (laughs) that we want um i think we're we're going to make changes and, um, you know, I can look, I, I look at Europe as kind of my main example, main reference point. I think there's a lot of scope in, especially kind of like Southeast Asia and many African countries that are expanding their grids and building new infrastructure now, there's a really good opportunity for them to get in from the start with really good practices, like sustainability practices and really, you know, boost from that side of things, but from um already very energy, de- energy heavy, countries like in Europe and very wasteful countries like in Europe, um, the kind of attitude shifts that I would have hoped to have seen by now haven't really happened. I hope it's not too late to save the world because I live on the world, Um, but it's hard not to feel a bit depressed sometimes (laughs) about the prospects.
0: Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for sharing your ideas with us in the Sustainable Futures Report. I think things are moving very swiftly. I think that um, change is, is accelerating. So I hope we can stay in touch and maybe talk to you in a year's time and see where things have gone from where they are now. So thanks again.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Sarah Cullen. I hope you found that interesting, maybe controversial. Let's have your feedback either by mail to mail at anthony-day.com or comments on the website. Where would you like to take the debate from here? What else would you like me to investigate? Before I go, let me tell you that the number of listeners to the Sustainable Futures Report has suddenly taken off. The total hits for February was nearly twice the rate for January, and the daily rate for March is already significantly higher than that. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're an established listener, especially if you're a patron, Thank you for your loyalty. I had a request this week from an agency in the US asking if I would advertise their curbside plastic collection startup and what I would charge. As I told them, I don't charge because I value my independence. The only income I get which goes towards the cost of transcriptions and hosting and website maintenance comes from my patrons via patreon.com SFR. Your support is very much appreciated. Well, I'm sure there'll be something to write about for Friday, but for the moment, that's it. Thanks again to Sarah Cullen, and thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, that was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day. Bye for now.